Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane, who lived in the 1800s, wrote a letter to a friend of his, and this is a part of it. He said, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love, and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart, and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. And that's kind of what David is getting at in Psalm 27. So turn there in your Bibles. We're continuing in our series, All the Paths of Yahweh. And what we're seeing in this series is that sometimes the paths that Jesus leads us on are not easy. we just saying, you lead me through the fire. Sometimes the paths that Jesus leads us on are marshy and swampy and treacherous and tricky. So what do you do when the path you're on is beset with difficulties and hardships and suffering? Well, you do what Robert Murray McShane said. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, every sin that haunts you, every regret that you have, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at what you're suffering, every look at what you're enduring, take ten looks at Jesus. Those ten looks will recalibrate your heart so that you can endure what you're suffering without losing your mind. So that you can know that you are forgiven. Okay, so I hope you've turned to Psalm 27. Scholars uh, generally agree that this psalm may have originally been two different songs that were put together to make one song, perhaps. Um, I don't know. Who knows? Only Jesus knows and David. Either way, we're going to break Psalm 27 up into two parts, right where the scholars say that these two songs came together. And what I want, I want to do that because I want us to spend one sermon unpacking what David means when he says that he wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What is the beauty of the Lord in Psalm 27? It might surprise you. What does it mean to gaze upon God's beauty? And why does David say, this is my number one prayer. This is all I want to do is gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Well, let's unpack it. Psalm 27, look at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. So David starts off his prayer, and notice that the stress is on Yahweh. Recall what I've said before many times, when you see in the Old Testament, the capital uh, Lord in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, The translators are letting you know that in the original Hebrew language that this is God's covenant name, Yahweh. In fact, Yahweh is the very first word in the Hebrew text of Psalm 27. It's emphatic. The emphasis is on Yahweh. Why does David do that? Why does he start off saying, Yahweh? Answer, because David knows that if he is going to endure his trials and deal with all these pesky adversaries without losing his mind, then he must keep his eyes on the Lord. And so he starts off this psalm by saying, Yahweh. It reminds me of something that the great Welsh pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He's, I wish I could do it in a Scottish accent. I'm not going to try sounds so much better when he says it. You're just like, wow. Uh, He says, always start in heaven and with God. Always. Then, having done that, come down to earth and face the problems of life and of earth and of living. We all get into trouble because we forget this principle. Never start with your problems. Never. Never start with earth. Never start with men. Always start in heaven. Always start with God. And then, in light of that, come down and face your problems and your difficulties. That's exactly what David does in Psalm 27. He starts with God and then he comes down to deal with his enemies and to deal with his problems. But David just doesn't start with God in his prayer. His whole life and this whole psalm is saturated with God. In fact, David mentions the name Yahweh 13 times in the 14 verses of this psalm. So almost Yahweh for every verse. His song, his prayer is saturated with the covenant name of God, reminding David that Yahweh will keep covenant with him and not forsake him even if David is faithless and fickle. God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, will be faithful to David. But what does David say about Yahweh, this covenant-keeping God? He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. So David starts his song off by reminding us that Scripture's answer to darkness, even the darkness that we may be suffering, the darkness that we may see in our country, Scripture's answer to darkness is light. In fact, God himself is light. The Apostle John tells us that. Scripture's answer to our own darkness, the darkness of our own hearts, is God himself. This is why David prays in Psalm 43. I love this verse. He says, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me to your uh, holy mountain, to your dwelling, and then I will go to the altar of God. 
to God my exceeding joy. He's saying, let your light, send out your light because I'm in darkness. Send out your truth because I'm believing lies. And let your light and let your truth take me out of my darkness, take me out of the falsehood, the lies that I'm believing, and let them lead me to your mountain, to your altar, which was the altar of where they would offer burnt sacrifices. Take me to where I see substitutionary atonement, where I'm reminded that my sins are forgiven. Then I will go to God, my exceeding joy. Yahweh is David's exceeding joy at the altar when he sees an animal die in his place. It's easy to make the connection to the New Testament now, right? It's at Calvary where we see Jesus dying in our place where he becomes our exceeding joy. So David prays in Psalm 43, send out your light and truth. Here he says, the Lord is my light. And when David says, Yahweh is my light, that is light breaking into his darkness. David's confession that Yahweh is his light is how light enters his darkness. When David speaks that Yahweh is his light, that confession, which is his theology, it actually brings light to the darkness of his situation. And so by saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? That actually brings light to David's heart. It reminds him that God is his savior. It reminds him that God is his strength. In other words, Jesus lights up your darkness, the darkness of your heart, the darkness of your country, the darkness of whatever you're living in. He lights up your darkness with truth, with the truth of his word. And so when you're in the middle of your darkness, whatever it is, you need to speak God's word in order to bring light into that darkness, in order to bring truth into that falsehood that you may be believing, the lies that you may be believing. So you don't focus on your problems, which is what we all do. Instead, you speak God's word. And you may have to speak it out loud so that light will enter into the darkness that you feel trapped in. The word stronghold that David uses in verse 1 is the same word that we saw last week in Psalm 26. It means refuge. It's a place of safety. It's used at Nahum 2.11 for the refuge that lions find in their dens. Nahum 2.11, where is the lion's den? That's the same word here, stronghold. Refuge. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. So here's what Psalm 27 is speaking to you today. If Jesus is your light, if Jesus is your salvation, if Jesus is your stronghold, if Jesus is your lion's den, if we can use that imagery, what in the world do you have to fear? Who do you have to fear? No one, because you are a cub of the Lion of Judah. You are safe in his lair, safe in his den. I mean, just imagine stumbling into a lion's den. How do you think that mama lion is going to respond when you walk into her home and try to come near her babies? You ain't going to make it out alive to tell people about it on Facebook. 
how much more then will Jesus respond with his strong protective care for us, his little cubs? He is our refuge, our lion's den of safety, our stronghold. And that means that David and us don't have to try to manufacture this strength to endure our trials. You don't have to be, try to be strong enough to endure difficulties. Strength comes actually when you embrace your weakness. I know it seems odd, doesn't it? Strength comes in the Christian life when you embrace your weakness and you believe it, you confess it, when you admit that you can't do it and you need protective care. It comes when you embrace just how desperate you really are. When you embrace your helplessness and confess that Jesus is enough. So whatever you're facing today, the answer is embracing your helplessness and then running to Jesus. That's what David does here. Are you tempted to be scared? Are evildoers ready to eat your flesh like a zombie like David here? Embrace your helplessness and run to Jesus. Are you facing heartbreaking family issues? Embrace your helplessness and run to Jesus. Are you overwhelmed with life? Embrace your helplessness. Run to Jesus. This one probably won't apply to anyone, but I'll go ahead and say it. Are you overwhelmed with the kids being out of school for the summer and everyone's fighting and bickering in your house? Embrace your helplessness and run to Jesus. Whatever it is that we face, whatever situation a church faces, whatever situation a disciple faces, the answer, though uncomfortable and though hard to admit, is to embrace your helplessness and run to Jesus, your stronghold. But notice, too, how personal this is for David. He says, my light, my salvation, the stronghold of my life. So there's, there's intimacy here. There's closeness. There's communion. He has fellowship with Yahweh, his God. Understand this, Grace. This means you have to personalize the attributes of God when you are suffering. You have to personalize God's character when you are going through heavy trials. You have to be able to say, he is my light, my salvation, my stronghold, my God, my Savior, my sovereign Lord. If you don't do that, your focus will become my problems, my trials, my enemies, my circumstances, my suffering. And when you do that, it'll drive you crazy, won't you? And no one will want to be around you. So here's what you have to do. You have to learn to stick your my on the front of God's character and not your problems. Let me say it again. You have to learn to stick your my, the intimacy of that my, on the front of God's character, on the front of God's attributes, on the front of who God is, and not stick it first on your problems. We naturally add our my's to our problems and our trials, and our suffering. But David is teaching us to add our mys to God in his character, to make it personal, to make it intimate. My God, my light, my salvation, my stronghold. And so because David starts with God, 
because he starts to heaven and then comes down to earth, down to his problems, he can then say he's not afraid of anyone. So Christian, if God is your light, if God is your savior, if God is your stronghold, whom shall you fear? Answer, no one. Now, of course, David has every earthly reason to be afraid, doesn't he? You know why? He tells us in verse 2 that he has people that want to eat him alive. Zombies, if you will, are after him. There was a member on the board of Converge, our denomination, who, uh, Jim was his name, who would call me three to four times a year while he served on the board just to check in on me and to pray with me. And we were talking one time during a pretty difficult season in the life of our church family, and he said to me these words, well, they can't eat you. His point was that no matter how bad it gets, the people that hate you or that are causing all the drama cannot eat you alive. But then I read Psalm 27, and David says, oh, yes, they can eat you. I've got zombie adversaries coming after me. Now, of course, David is not speaking about real zombies here. He's speaking metaphorically, but he does that to stress just how awful, just how vicious and evil his enemies actually were. They wanted him dead. And they just might put him in between a hot dog bun. But even that doesn't undo the peace that David has. He's not afraid of any army. He is confident that his enemies will fall. How so? Where does his confidence come from? It's because he started with God. Because his focus is on the Lord, not on all his problems. Christian, you can have this same kind of confidence as David did when you undergo trials and tribulations, maybe something you didn't even ask for that came into your life. You can have the same kind of confidence. that Whatever comes your way, you do not have to fear you can be confident that Jesus will carry you through. That's one reason why David says that he wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Here's why. Because David knows that gazing upon the beauty of the Lord will recalibrate his heart. He knows it will help him keep his fear in check. He knows that it will give him confidence in the face of these people that want to eat him alive or protest in the streets, or come after churches and pregnancy resource centers. Look at verse 4. One thing have I asked of Yahweh, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh, and to inquire in his temple. All that David wants is to be with Jesus. He wants to go to the tabernacle and be with Yahweh, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And here's the beauty that staggered David every time he went into the sanctuary. It was this truth, that Yahweh cannot get close enough to his people, that Jesus cannot get close enough to his people. David never got over that. David is awestruck that a holy God would desire fellowship, desire an intimate relationship with rebellious sinners. 
David never got over the fact that there actually was a sanctuary with priests and sacrifices where sinners could draw near to the Lord. He never got over that. I think Exodus 25 verse 8 must have been ringing in David's ears. Exodus 25 8 says, this is the Lord speaking, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That verse ought to give you goosebumps. We're not as shocked as we should be when we read that I may dwell in their midst. Yahweh was saying, y'all make me a tent to live in. Pitch it and I will come down there and we can commune with one another. Let's get together. What do you say? That should stagger us. God initiated all of this because he wanted to be close to his people, because he loves being close to his people, because Jesus cannot stay away from sinners. And yet we struggle to believe that, even as Christians, don't we? We struggle to believe that God wants to be with us, to have an intimate relationship, to have fellowship, to spend time with us where we talk to him and he talks to us through his word. Please understand, though, that welcoming sinners into his presence did not compromise God's holiness at all. Sinners could enter, but they had to come through sacrifice, through substitutionary atonement, as we saw last week, where an animal died in their place, took their blame. Part of the beauty of the Lord that David wants to gaze upon, you know what? Part of the beauty that David wants to gaze upon is the sacrificial system. Part of the beauty that he wants to stare at and be taken up in and be in awe and wonder of is the sacrificial system that lambs are being slain to cover his sin. David could not enter into the inner part of the tabernacle even though he was king. Just the courtyard area on the outside. He couldn't see the insides where the lampstand was and the table of showbread and the incense. He could not see into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. I know at some point the Ark of the Covenant was over here and then there was a tabernacle there, but he couldn't see in there. Only the priests could go in. So the beauty that has David mesmerized in Psalm 27 and that he wants to gaze upon is the sacrificial system. It's seeing an animal being slain for his sins. It's smelling the smoke that ascends toward heaven when that animal is burned up on the offering. It's the priest announcing to David that Yahweh can't remember his sins. That's the beauty that he wants to gaze upon. In fact, this word in verse 4 is usually translated as beauty by all the translations. That's how they translate this Hebrew word. And that's fine, but it's actually the word for kindness or favor or grace. That's how the ESV, even though the ESV translates it as beauty in Psalm 27, in Psalm 90, verse 17, they translate it as favor. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And then in other places, all the translations do this. They go beauty here, and they go favor, gracious, things like that elsewhere. 
like in Zechariah 11, Proverbs 3, Proverbs 15, Proverbs 26. But it's the word for kindness. Now, I don't know why they do that. Listen, when I say this, your English translations, you can trust them. That's the word of God. Translators are struggling like with some words. How do we take this Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic word and move it over into English? So you're tr- you can trust the Bible you have. But they're wrestling sometimes with specific words. And I wish they would just choose kindness here. But I think maybe it's because they're thinking, well, why would David want to gaze on God's kindness and what does that look like? Well, David wants to gaze upon the kindness, the favor of the Lord, the grace of God. And that changes how you view this verse, doesn't it? Because I grew up thinking beauty was maybe all the tabernacle decorations and things or some kind of mysterious glory or something like that. I didn't really know what it was. It was very, really vague. But when you think of it as kindness, going to the tabernacle, gazing upon the kindness of the Lord, as an animal was slain for you, it changes everything, doesn't it? What is the kindness of the Lord at the tabernacle? It's all the sacrifices. It's all the animals that were slain for sin. It's the blood that was shed for sin. It's substitutionary atonement. It's these gross and smelly and gory sacrifices where there was blood everywhere, slitting an animal's throat, washing its innards, setting them here, taking the legs, setting them there. All of that, in all of that messy, gross, gory, bloody business, David saw the kindness of God. David knew that the whole tabernacle was this giant, blinking, neon sign pointing to the kindness of Jesus That it was God coming down to fellowship with sinners. That was kindness. The fact that God lived at the tabernacle and invited sinners into his fellowship was kindness. The fact that God couldn't get close enough to his people was kindness. The fact that Yahweh spoke to his people through the Ten Commandments, which were in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, was kindness. God communicated to people. They knew what was expected of them. That was all God's kindness. A God who forgives, a God who speaks, a God who protects, a God who welcomes sinners, a God who just can't get close enough to his people. That's kindness. Because we don't deserve any of it, do we? And that's what David wanted to gaze upon. The kindness of Yahweh in stark contrast to his sin and rebellion. Which is why David would tell you this morning, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He's saying, focus on Jesus. Don't be morbidly introspective. Look to him. For every one look at your sinful self, take 10 looks at Jesus and stare at him. Be dazzled by him. Behold his beauty. Behold his glory. Behold his kindness and be transformed. Ray Ortland says, even when we see the stupidity of our sins and how empty they are, and how they only make us sad. They do, by the way, don't they? Sin is pleasurable for a season, but man, does it come back and you have to pay the high cost of low living, don't you? 
Even when we see the stupidity of our sins and how empty they are and how they only make us sad, that realization still does not change us. We start changing only when we see Christ. We start changing only when we see Christ. That's it. You can go home and beat yourself up all you want over your sin and still not change. We only change when we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's the essence of discipleship. Being entranced by Jesus, seeing his kindness, seeing his favor, seeing his beauty and giving his life for our sin. And when you do that, guess what? It actually makes you want to live for him. You want to live for him when you realize that he loves you and forgives you. It doesn't give you a free pass to sin. As one of my friends Gary says, he's like, brother, you don't need a free pass to sin. You're ready to go already. God's kindness is not going to make you want to sin more. You have no problem with wanting to sin more, okay? You're fired up and ready to do that. It's the kindness of Jesus that keeps you from wanting to do that because you see who he is and you're like, oh, yes, I want to live for you. And then it totally recalibrates your heart. Sam Storm says, God is infinitely splendid and invites us to come and bask in his beauty that we might enjoy him to the fullest. Is that how you picture God? It's why you were made. It's why Jesus died, so that you could bask in his beauty forever, so that you could enjoy the infinitely splendid God to the fullest. This is God's will for your life, to enjoy him to the fullest. That's your job description as a disciple, to enjoy him to the fullest. And you do that by gazing on his beauty, gazing on his kindness to you in Christ. Now think about this. What's happening in David's life as he writes this psalm? He's surrounded by enemies. Some who want to put him on a hot dog bun and eat him up. And yet, what is David's main prayer? What's the one thing he wants most in life? Is it to escape all his problems? Is it to get away from his enemies? Is it relief from suffering? No. The one thing David wants more than anything in the world is to gaze upon the beauty, gaze upon the kindness of Yahweh and meditate and think on him in the tabernacle. People want to eat David alive, and his first thought is, I just want to get to church where I can gaze upon the kindness of Yahweh. Think about that. David's experience would be difficult for any of us, but think with me. If you were in the middle of Psalm 27, there's an army on my front porch kind of stuff, what's the first thing you would pray for? What is the central thing that you would desire in that moment? You almost can't help but be shocked by David's response. He doesn't crave vengeance. He doesn't cry out first for protection or justice. No, David's first thoughts run to the temple where the Lord dwells. The first desire of his heart is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. In other words, David knows that church, the Old Testament version at the tabernacle, church is where his heart gets recalibrated. He wants to go to church to be with the people of God, to be with his God. 
Michael Horton says, whatever fills our Sundays fills our hearts throughout the week. Filled with the intensity of such sovereign grace, the Lord's Day becomes a beachhead for the transformation of our whole lives so that every day is warmed by its light. What David sees and hears and smells and tastes at church fills his life, fills his heart. He takes what transpires at church and it fills his heart throughout the week. And it gives him perspective as he suffers so that he doesn't obsess over getting relief from his trials. Let me say that again. By being with the people of God, hearing about substitutionary atonement, the forgiveness of sins, it gives David perspective as he suffers so that he doesn't obsess, like we all do, over getting relief from all of his trials. Which if you're like me, that's what I spend most of my time doing. I'm in this situation, God answer, please get up, it's going to be free. But we want relief from our troubles when we suffer, right? We want instant relief, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong in going to God and, and asking him for relief and praying and asking him to answer you. I'm not saying that at all, okay? But more than relief, David wants to see Jesus. Why? Because David knows that seeing Jesus recalibrates your heart so that you can endure all of your troubles. Our tendency is to focus and obsess over relief, the relief that we'll get and experience if God intervenes and answers our prayers yesterday. But that's backwards. Psalm 27 wants you to know that first we look to Jesus to gaze upon his beauty, to gaze upon his kindness, and that then stabilizes us as we go through trials and difficulties and we pray for God to intervene and we pray for relief. The confidence that we see of David in the first three verses is David after he has seen the beauty of the Lord because there are other Psalms where he's not so confident, right? It's important to understand that here. David's confidence is not something he bought off of Amazon. This is not some personality trait, gifting, Enneagram number, none of that for David. His confidence, depending on the psalm that you read, comes and goes, doesn't it? He's just like us. He trusts Yahweh one minute, then he doubts and stresses and chews his fingernails down to his elbows. And then he does it all over again. David is confident here at the beginning of Psalm 27, because he has gazed upon the beauty of the Lord, because he started with Yahweh, because he started in heaven. But then you have to keep reading, and we'll look at it next week. But David, just a few verses later, has desperation in his voice, and that's why Old Testament scholars say this must be two different songs that it, psalms that have been put together, because he's so confident here, and then there's desperation here. Can't be the same situation I think it is because we're all this way, right? There's times where we walk in faith, we're confident, yes, and then we're like, oh, woe's me. And then confident, and then woe's me. That's David here. That's why scholars want to break it up. It's like, I must have been two different songs. No, this is the reality of a disciple in a fallen world. You can hear the desperation in David's voice. If you stick your ear close enough to your Bible, you can actually hear it. Because he says in verse 7, Hear, O Yahweh, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. See, David's just like us. 
I trust you, Lord. Oh no, answer me. I trust you, Jesus. Oh no, answer me. David's confidence is David in faith in this moment saying all of this. And by saying it out loud, I think it stabilizes his heart. That happens, you know. Sometimes you have to say a verse out loud to get your heart recalibrated. Sometimes you have to say it out loud, maybe even scream what you know is true about Jesus. Sometimes you have to say like David does in Psalm 27, he will, he will, he will, I shall, I will, I will. And that's exactly what David does next. Look at verse five. For he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble, in his shelter. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So do you see how it works? You talk about what Yahweh will do. He will, he will, he will, he will. And then that recalibrates your heart and then you can say in faith, I will, I will, I will. That's how it works. You talk about what God can do, what God will do because he's your light, your stronghold, your salvation. He will, he will, he will. He will do this and now I will do this. Gazing upon the kindness of the Lord causes David to trust him, to say with confidence, Yahweh will do all of these things for me. He'll take care of me. And that leads David to worship, to offer sacrifices with shouts of joy, to sing loudly, to make melody all the days of his life. It's something we need to learn to do. He will, and then I will. He will, and then I will shall. But David just doesn't just want to do this at the tabernacle. His hope is that he will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, which include all the days of eternal life. And David will get to gaze upon the kindness of Jesus for eternity because what does the apostle Paul say in Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 7? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is eternity going to be like? What's it going to be? What are we going to do all day? What will all the days of my life on the new earth be like for David and for those who trust in Christ? One word answer, kindness. All day, every day, 24-7, kindness. For ages and ages and ages, because Paul uses the plural for ages here. Whatever that means, ages. There's not just one age of eternity, there's ages. 
For ages and ages and ages and ages, what will God be doing in eternity? Showing the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What will we do for all eternity on the new earth in new glorified bodies? We will gaze upon the beauty, gaze upon the kindness of the Lord for eternity. So why not get a jump start now? Gaze upon Jesus. Open up your Bible and read and see him. Dwell upon his promises. Meditate on his character, on his attributes. Think about him, who he is, what he is like, and then add your my to it all and say, he is my light, my salvation, my stronghold. This is how you go through trials. It's getting more of Jesus into your brain than your problems. It's getting more of Jesus into your heart than your suffering. Now, if you've been a Christian for very long, you know this will not be easy. It's why Paul also says, fight the good fight of faith. How do we fight the good fight of faith? For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Your light, your salvation, your stronghold. That's how you do it. And you may have to take 10,000 looks at Christ, and that's okay. For every look at your sin, take 10 looks upon the kindness of God. For every look at your suffering, take 10 looks at the beauty of the Lord. To quote Robert Murray McShane again, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners even the chief live much in the smiles of God bask in his beams feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart. And so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that there's sweetness in you and kindness. For so long in my life, Jesus, I just thought you were angry all the time, every day, and every once in a while, if we caught you in a good mood, you'd be nice to us. And yet, Scripture paints the opposite picture. Of course, your anger is an expression of your justice against sin, and that is real. But who you are at your core is kindness, sweetness, beauty, just what sinners need. And we come to you this morning, Jesus, as needy sinners. We say, forgive us and strengthen us and help us and change us. May we gaze upon your beauty and your kindness and be satisfied. May we leave here today saying that 
You are our exceeding joy. In your name we pray.